Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you get a phone call in the middle of the night, it's never normally good news. No matter where you're from, that's a pretty universal rule. But on this occasion, it really depends on how you look at it. For Jan Wiley, mother of Kate and Lauren Morris, this wasn't great by any means. But she knows this one could have been much, much worse. The first time the phone rang, um, it went dead. And so I went back to bed and then the same thing happened. So it was the middle of the night, so I decided to stay up and put the heater on and Sam got up and uh, we basically sat by the phone waiting for it to ring again because we really had no idea who was trying to contact us. Over the past eight months, I've spoken to people from all over the world who were involved in the Palace Hostel fire that night in Childers. There's been one common theme. Call home as soon as possible. Sarah Marnie. I remember getting back going, shit, you know, my dad, he gets up so early and he listens to the news and if he hears about this, he's going to freak out. So I remember thinking, I've got to call him. But there was this huge lineup to use a public phone because, you know, there wasn't many mobile phones back in 2000 and mine got burnt and everyone else's got burnt too. So there's a lineup to use a public phone. Jessica Vegand. I can't remember what time this was, but I, I rung her and I remember her, you know, answering the phone. Oh, hi, darling. You know, oh, I've had such a lovely day. I've been gardening. It's really sunny. How are you? And I was just like, you know, I am going, yeah, I'm fine. But um, but the backpacker hostel I'm in has burned down. And I remember saying, the, your backpack has burned. And I was like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. My backpack has burned, but it's the whole hostel has burnt as well and the firstborn of this lady. Hello, my name is Susan O'Brien, and our son is Keith O'Brien. I just rang him up. When the opportunity to ring him up came in that night, irrelevant to time zones, and I spoke to my mum, and I said, there's been a fire. I said, I'm all right. And she says, it's Kelly, because she knew I was a roommate. Is she okay? I went, yeah. She said, you look after that girl. Yeah. Tough conversation to have, mate. Yeah. It was 7.15 in the evening, UK time. Um, he told us what happened. He, he said there'd been uh, a fire at the hostel he was staying at, the palace. He mentioned um, about the bars on the windows, uh, there's no smoke alarms, no fire alarms. He told us that him and his roommate was safe, Kelly. He got her out. She, he had to uh, squeeze between the bars of the windows. 
You also mentioned that there was 25 people still unaccounted for at that time. You were both pretty incoherent and it was hard to reason with you. My first thoughts were that you should fly home and I wanted to arrange a flight for you both straight away to leave Queensland, but you weren't in any place to make a decision about doing anything really. You were both coughing and were telling me how you were having breathing difficulties and that you were going to get some medical assistance. I suppose at that time when we called, we didn't really um, have any idea that people were missing. No. um, You know, and talking to you on the phone, we had no idea of the magnitude of the fire. You just said it was a fire and that you'd got out of the building. There was no talk of it being arson, being a deliberately lit fire. And at that stage, of course, there were probably kids everywhere, so no one really had an indication that anyone was missing. We asked him, was he okay? He said he was. Um, he was safe. I didn't say no, the talk on was left to Keith. Uh, he said he, he would bring us back sometime later that day. He told me he loved me. I said, I love you, just take care and put the phone down. And that's kind of how most of those conversations rolled. Everyone in the middle of the night, a cold, extremely foggy, eerie night, draped in white blankets, queued up at the public phone box to phone home, reverse charge, collect calls to locations across the globe. Social media might not have existed, but the news cycle still reported goings-on in pretty timely fashion and the survivors were anxious to get in front of the news before their families heard it first. It didn't take long, though, for the families to be part of the story themselves. We got a phone call at 5am in the morning, and we thought it was Keith who answered the phone, and it was a journalist from the Manchester Evening News, and he asked for Keith by name, and he asked about the fire. So I asked him how did he know about it, and he said turn your TVs on. So we turned our TV on and we, we saw what was actually happening in Childers. Um, my husband got very upset. There and then he wanted to go over to Keith. He wanted to fly over. Um, he wanted to see what he could do. He wanted to try and help. He, 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 I don't think he believed Keith was alive. They got some assurity through the news itself. Immediately after the fire, Keith was leading the criticism of those switched-off smoke alarms and was in the lead story of most television news bulletins worldwide. I had to help her roommate out. We walked out of the room, she fell over and cracked her head on the floor, picked her up, kicked our door down and had to shove her out a little tiny window. Not one fire alarm went off, not one nothing. Disappointing? Disappointing, mate. This shit has wrecked a lot of people's lives. Not persons, people over here, you know, 40,000 miles from range, stuff like that. And I've got a thing to the name. Just pray to God there's no one in there. That day was a bit of a whirlwind. There was phone calls, family, friends. There was a lot of phone calls from journalists, uh, the BBC, Sky News. It was, it was, it was a crazy day. For Paul and Susan O'Brien, enormous relief. 
son Keith returned to the hostel after celebrating his 22nd birthday. He, at least, was safe. So it, was, it was terrifying. The, the flames were licking the walls. The heat was unbearable. Um, but he kept his head. Lost friends. They've made new friends out there. And lost those friends. People we've been working with a few days before had now died. The palace is familiar to 100,000 British... We had the TV on. All day we were watching every scrap of news we could. We saw Keith give a few interviews with his lovely brown suit on. Um, we, we had a little smile to ourselves because it, it's, it's typically what Keith would do. But when you, you looked in, in the background and you could just see the devastation on people's faces. Jan was running similar emotions and the next morning got the first flight from Perth to Queensland. There was certainly uh, eeriness about Childers and a sense of sadness and devastation. Um, in the main street, the emergency workers were still working in the building um, and there was a scissor lift that was uh, coming down from the first floor, still bringing bodies out, so it was just totally devastating. You stayed with us a week for that week or, or, or so after and met a lot of the survivors and the community members of Childers. Yeah, the, the people of Childers really, you know, embraced everybody. They were stolic and they, they couldn't believe that this tragedy had happened in their beautiful little community. And they were so practical with everything they did. They arranged meals, beds, clothes, whatever was needed. And there was certainly a lot of the locals comforting the survivors and doing all the practical things that were needed. Seeing it firsthand certainly helped, but for people like Paul and Susan O'Brien and the parents of backpackers right across the world, the distance never felt further. And there were multiple layers to that. You had the families of young travellers in countless countries who weren't sure if their kids were even staying at the palace. So the unknown was unnerving. There were those families that did receive a call of the very worst kind or a knock at their front door to tell them their son, their daughter, was one of the 15 who lost their life in the fire. And those who simply felt helpless from afar knowing their child was in a remote regional town with nothing to their name, no possessions, physically and emotionally fragile, coming to terms with something they could never have imagined. We went to bed and I couldn't sleep again. Uh, my husband couldn't. Uh, he went to work uh, to catch up on some work he had to do. I walked around to our local village shop to get the daily paper, not thinking any more about any of it. And when I got to the local shop, the lady who runs the shop um, wrapped a bundle of papers up for me and she just handed them to me and she, she said, you'll be needing all of them. Uh, I walked out the shop, I walked home, I sat down and opened the papers and it said that I just cried. I don't know whether I cried out of relief because our son was safe. I don't know if I cried for the people who knew had died 
I was angry because it was a callous act, deliberate. Oh, it was awesome, and and these, these these children went to bed to go to sleep in a safe place, and you put your head on a pillow and you think you're safe, and they went, and I just cried and cried. Keith stayed in Childers a little longer. He was back home a month after the fire, surprising his parents when they returned from a short trip away in Scotland. And when we walked through the front door, and there was a card stood there leaning on a, a lamp on a horse stand. And it looked like Keith's writing. And I said to my husband, that looks like Keith's writing. And he said, it does, yeah. And when we looked, Keith was stood there. At the top of the stairs, he was just stood there. There was screaming, there was crying, there was hugs. Um, my husband was like super glued to Keith's side. He was, he was so relieved to actually see him in the flesh. But the thing is, he'd been back in the UK longer than that. He'd been staying with an old friend without his family knowing. It was very much out of character, but his way of easing back into the world as he once knew it. And the first definitive sign for Paul and Susan that their son had returned home a very different version of the young man who set off on his 21st birthday travel adventure. We knew it was going to be a long, hard road. But I don't think any one of us realised how long and how hard it was going to be for Keith. He was angry, he was sad, he was quiet. And I think at times he was lonely. He never discussed the fire with us in any detail. He told us very little. So anything we found out, we had to glean from newspapers or from interviews people had given. And we've learned more from the podcast than we've known. We knew the names of the victims. We knew where they were from. Uh, He told us a little about each and every one of them. And that was all, really. Ask any of the survivors who escaped the palace that night, and they'll readily admit What happened that night changed them forever. Their persona, their interaction with others, and their relationship with their families. It wasn't deliberate, wasn't planned or targeted. It's just how the after effects manifested themselves on those nearest and dearest to them. When Keith was in the fire, the son that went to Australia was not the son we got back. He had changed, he changed completely. Um, and he wasn't as easy going. He could find fault with a lot of things, especially anything that I particularly did. I understood that this was his way of venting and his grieving process. Anyway, time made heal, well, healed Keith. He got help. Most were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and families were left to pick up the pieces that had been shattered by the evil of one man. And that magnified itself in so many ways. We've heard so many talk about survivor's guilt. But when you throw grief into the mix, it's a very messy concoction. Have you had much to do with any of the families of some of those 15 people who lost their lives? Some of them. 
some good experiences, some not. So, you know, pe- people deal with it in their own ways. And I just have to appreciate that, that things were said at the time. And you should never have to bury your child. Nobody should ever have to do that. Maybe I look at it differently now I'm a parent. When you say not so good experiences, Sorry. like what, what is that sort of? Oh, yeah. Being blamed, you know, why are you here? Why is my you know, son daughter not here? I can't do anything about that. If you want, you want to meet me, and you want me to talk about what happened, I'll, I'll, I'll do that for you. But then there's been other ones, other parents, and they were phenomenal. People deal with it in different ways, you know. Susan remembers attending the opening of the memorial to the victims in October 2002. My true feelings that day, I felt a fraud. I felt. We shouldn't have been there. There were people there who had lost their children. There were people there who were grieving. And it was it was etched on the faces. But they'd been invited along and Keith spoke on behalf of the survivors. A day hasn't passed throughout the last two years and four months that we haven't had thoughts of you all. Later on at the memorial service, I went into to the restroom and a lady came in and I did recognise her as one of the victim's parents and she said to me, boy or girl? And I said, oh boy. She said, who? And I said, Keith O'Brien. And she was crying when she said this. She said, why couldn't he have saved my daughter? And I didn't know what to say and I was upset for her. I, I wanted to, to hug her. Um, but a body language told me otherwise, and I said I was so, so sorry. Um, I was crying at this point, and she just looked at me and turned around and walked out the room. And I came out, I told my husband quietly what had happened. We both understood. We weren't angry at her. There was also the hate mail that came and uh, that's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life is to, to open up the mail and you F and C, you killed my sister or brother, that sort of stuff uh, is very difficult to take. But you try and put yourself in their position. It's not that they're trying to say that to you, they're grieving and, and sometimes you say things. So you try and understand that, but it does take an emotional toll on you, yeah. So much destruction that's ruined so many lives, or at least stripped layers bare that will never be repaired. For most of the families who lost loved ones that night, even after 20 years, it's still way too raw to speak about. It's so difficult to comprehend their grief. As a local journalist at the time, we'd often see comment from the family of Kelly and Stacey Slark twin sisters on the other side of the country who never came home. It's only in more recent times since I've been working on this podcast that I I think I've fully understood just how horrific that must have been for their family. To not only lose those closest and dearest to you, but to have reporters calling their home. I can only apologise if I played a part in that. 
I did reach out to Kelly and Stacey's sister Sally for this podcast. She sent me a kind note, which I, I can't fully explain to you just how wonderful that was to receive. And a tribute to her sisters on behalf of the Slark family, which I've asked a friend of mine to read. What we lost with the death of Kelly and Stacey is immeasurable. They were the very definition of youthful joy. The youngest in the family, and identical twins, they were carefree and fun-loving, as the youngest in families often are. They were rarely apart, rarely unhappy, and they imbued us all with their good humour. You'd find yourself laughing whether you wanted to or not when you were with them. If you had met them, you would have liked them, if not loved them. The loss we feel is insurmountable, too great to be overcome. We simply weather it. We send our love and wishes for peace to the families, survivors and all of those who were involved and who are still profoundly affected 20 years later. The toll has been immense, a community torn apart, but put back together through strong leadership and a determined township but some just didn't cope. There were suicides, survivors, first responders, people around town so deeply affected by what took place. Many relationships fell apart, and yet the man responsible was handed just 20 years for the worst arson attack in Queensland history. I don't know how I would feel if Keith hadn't have come back. I don't know how I would have dealt with it. I think it would have destroyed his father. And and my concern has always been that everybody was safe and and Keith wasn't that night and those poor 15 vibrant children through lack of safety regulations and an idiot of a man died. When Keith escaped that night, he rescued his roommate, Welsh girl, Kelly Simons, as well. She is still struggling to come to terms with what happened in Childers. Her travel companions and best friends, Natalie Morris and Sarah Williams, were both staying in room seven, where all ten people died. I just want everyone to know and remember what amazing girls Sarah and Natalie were. They were beautiful, inside and out, and they were kind, caring, compassionate and funny. They would light up any room that they walked into and we'd made so many friends on our trip. They missed so much every single day. Missed but not forgotten. Immediately after the fire, the survivors made a pact to always honour the group they would affectionately dub the Palace 15. Many went and got tattoos as a tribute. Keith waited a while but there's been quite a few over the past decade. I remember driving back up there with my wife and we were coming into town from Brisbane. You know, it was like, what was that tattoo studio there? You know, going in and I was going to have a little cheeky look at that. Get chatting to a fella who was one of the paramedics. He was a tattoo artist, one of the... Because, you know, all the emergency services were volunteered, a lot of them. Meet this fella. Oh, you know what, mate? Let's book in an afternoon and let him do some... Let him, who had something to do with the fire, tattoo me arm. What'd you get tattooed on your arm? 
he didn't notice on on top of me my shoulder. He just started off a sleeve on my shoulder. It was quite. It was, it was nice. It's not the best tattoo I've got by any stretch, but the fellow who did it and and what he did it, yeah. Uh, yeah, he did a good. He, it, that was more important. Once I found out who he was, I was like, <laughs> yeah. It's nice to have those memories. I have, I have loads of tattoos for memorials of the fire. Lots of people do. What else have you got? I got a Southern Cross. I got a date. I have one leg done with uh, cherry blossoms on it. Fifteen cherry blossoms. I had my shoulder done. Yeah, a few. Tattoos of eternal flames and candles are common among the group. June 23, each year. How do you guys? We light the candle. We have this sort of, so yeah, that was the candle so that was that was, that was given to us at the us memorial. memorial. Yep. So, so we, that's lit every year. So we, we, have, we have. On the 23rd and the 2nd of July, because 2nd of July is her birthday. Yeah. So twice a year, every year. Yeah. Sometimes it might be a day late, but then we say, well, it's still 23rd in Ireland, so we. Get away with it. Yeah, and yeah, talk. Although it's less frequent now, um, talk to like my my mum. Although I, I her her mood changes around that time of year every year. Mm. Um, yeah. I raise a toast at night to my absent friends. Pretty much wherever I am in the world. If I'm at home, what I do every year is I take fifteen flowers down to the cemetery in our church and I find graves that don't have flowers on them and I leave a flower on each one of them. That's what I do. Oh, mate, that's, that's so beautiful. What an incredible thing to do. Well, so yeah, that's my June 23 usually. And us as a family remember on the 23rd of June, we remember other times of the year when we're talking about certain things and it comes up and I've always believed if you talk about people that have gone they're never dead and I want Keith to live his life for these people it's a day a lot of us will never forget mate for all the all the wrong reasons yeah yeah been a few tears along the along the 20 years I'd imagine yeah yes mate absolutely absolutely you know, we move on, I look at what I've got, you look at what you've got now, and think, you know, I've got two boys, wife, you know, I've got to be happy. It's taken a while, but Keith is finally in a much better place in so many ways. He's just one of so many who found it hard to navigate their way through the haunting memories of what happened inside the palace that night. Susan is just one parent who struggled to comprehend the change in their child and subsequently beat themselves up for being unable to unlock the answers to magically make everything right again. She reckons things took about eight years to return to somewhere close to normal. Around the same time, Keith married his beautiful wife. Perhaps a broken heart can be mended after all, hey? Their journey is merely representative of so many who never returned home the same. A case study, if you like, all because of one disturbed individual. Thank you for sharing your story. It really is important that it's told to help fully understand the magnitude of the grief and trauma endured by all involved. I'm sure peace and happiness would be exactly what the Palace 15 would want for their friends, 
who survived the fire 20 years on. Now, as a side note, Keith does still have that brown suit he was given soon after escaping the fire. One day it may end up in the memorial back in Childers, which is well worth checking out if you can get along to pay respects to the victims of the fire. It's run by the Bundaberg Regional Council, who've been great supporters of this podcast. It was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran, edited and sound designed by Zoltan Fecho. He composed all the original music you've heard throughout the series too. Don't forget to tell as many family members and friends as you can about the podcast. I really do appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.